This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. A fresh look at freedom. Russell Shorto. Why did you write it now? I mean, why does it have special resonance today well, as that's, opposed to, say, five years ago? Well, that's, I think, partly accidental because when I was working on it, I thought I was doing history. You know, I thought, I was, I thought it was these things were long ago settled. I didn't think we would, I would be living in a time when freedom of the press and freedom of religion and freedom of speech, these things would be debatable or even under attack. How, How do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So before we begin, Jim, uh, what does this show mean to you? Why, oh, why man, you didn't give me any time to prepare. No, right? no, absolutely. Well, actually, I thought, so I was just, I was, I was coming in today and I was just, you know, we're reading this fantastic book by Russell Shorto and we've met so many interesting people, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson and discussing big ideas. So I just love being involved in in the important conversations happening today, looking at it from this great variety of perspectives. And, and if you want to be more involved and help us, then please rate us and review us on iTunes. Give us five stars and also write a review. That really helps our visibility. It helps spread the word and helps build this sense of community that I hope we all share. That's a pretty good answer. <laughs> Jim, this show reminds me of episodes when we spoke with Michael Shermer when he made the case for skepticism and science, and Stephen Greenblatt, who spoke movingly about Adam and Eve and our very human need for, for origin stories. Today's show is kind of an origin story about the origins of our country and, and many of our values. We're interviewing Russell Shorto, an author many people know from his great book, The Island at the Center of the World, about Manhattan in the days of the Dutch in the 17th century. His new book is called Revolution Song, A Story of American Freedom. And it's what, what we're both reading it and really enjoying it because it tells the story of the American Revolution, not just from the perspective of George Washington and some of the other founding fathers that we know, but from an Indian chief, a slave, and seeing perspectives that are very different from the ones that we typically associate with history. At a time when democracy is challenged, we thought it was a good idea to speak about freedom. What does it mean to you? Why is it important? Russell Shorto, welcome to our table. Very happy to be here. You write, I think it's on the page one of your book, that in a sense, the American Revolution never ended. What do you mean? 
I think the American Revolution was fundamentally a promise of freedom. We think of it as political freedom. That was the main thing. And it was partly fulfilled. What was fulfilled was a remarkable thing that had never happened before. This, this republic, this one-person, one-vote idea. But even that, it was, only, it was less than 10% of the people who had the vote at the time. It was essentially white men who owned property. But political freedom was only one part of this larger wave of freedom that had to do with individuals, individual freedom of all kinds. So if you think about it, all of American history, in a sense, has been an attempt to unravel these other freedoms that were not fulfilled with the revolution, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement, even things like um, uh, consumer rights. Now, it, most people, when they think about the revolution, we know the stories of the signers of Ben Franklin and George Washington. But your book also focuses on a lot of people who typically aren't part of that central narrative. In fact, you say there were many sides to the conflict, many different people clamoring and clawing over freedom. Yeah. My idea from the beginning was not so much to write a book about the American Revolution, but to get a feel for what it was like from different perspectives to live through it. And so I years ago started with this notion that I would pick an, an assembly of people from very different backgrounds, and they had to be people whose lives were well documented because I, I'm doing nonfiction. Because I wanted it eventually to be one story, they had to fit together. I mean, they didn't all have to sort of be in the same room at one point together, but the stories had to fit together to some extent. Why did you write it now? I and mean, why does it have special resonance today well, as that's, opposed to, say, five years ago? Well, that's, I think, partly accidental because when I was working on it, I thought I was doing history. You know, I thought, I was, I thought it was these things were long ago settled. I didn't think we would, I would be living in a time when freedom of the press and freedom of religion and freedom of speech, these things would be debatable or even under attack. Uh, so it's in the past year or so, I have, I, I had the sensation that these documents that I have been kind of up to my neck in for the past four or five years, suddenly people are returning to them and saying, well, wait a second, what is this all based on? And, and for you personally, I mean, when you think about those values that the American Revolution brought to the fore and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, what particularly speaks to you? My um, historical training, my real, where I've really spent time is in the 17th century. When I wrote my book, The Island at the Center of the World, about the Dutch founding of New York, uh, in part out of this fascination I've always had with the 17th century and the moment when people suddenly started to see themselves as individuals the way we do. Uh, before that, you were completely bound up with your guild and your church and your synagogue or your parish or whatever it was, and at that moment, when they started peering into telescopes and microscopes... Or, and or like Descartes into their own minds. Exactly. Right. Uh, people like Descartes suddenly saying, wait a second, we all have this thing called reason, and it connects with the universe in this mysterious way. And that means every individual is equally valuable, equally worthy, equally worthy of idea. a vote. People don't, I don't think people appreciate what a, what a shocking... It was almost like a Copernican revolution in our idea of the person. Exactly. So that's what has always, that's where I've always kind of gone back to that moment. And in the years since I wrote Island at the Center of the World, I think kind of in the back of my mind, I sort of marched forward decade by decade. And I came at the American Revolution from the other side. And when I did, I saw this wave that had been building in Europe and then in America kind of infect people here. 
And, uh, and then you see the leaders here in their disgruntlement in England suddenly decide to kind of package this, to, to, to sort of train the beam of it onto this notion of political freedom and, and no taxation without representation and those kinds of things. And yet your book... Revolution Song is is a very unorthodox look at the American Revolution from many different perspectives. But again, this is all, you know, this force that started a century before was all about individuals. So I thought I wanted to look at it from different individuals' perspectives, not just the perspective of the the men in their powdered wigs, but, you know, a sla- what did it, what did it feel like to be a slave in the period to be in the case of another of the people in my book, a loyalist woman? Uh, to be uh, at the street level, to be uh, a tradesman. That was one that really captured me, your story of Abraham Yates, this shoemaker who was kind of self-educated and became a low-level official in the city of Albany when it was really a raw, almost a frontier town. And yet he was outraged at the British putting all their troops in everyone's houses and abusing the local population during the French and Indian Wars. And he wrote this amazing legal memorandum. In one of the lines he says that people have a fixed fundamental right born with him as to the freedom of his person and property in his estate, which he cannot be deprived of. It's such an early, and this was years, this is 20 years before. So in other words, troops can't just show up and say, we're fighting a war, and we we need to take over your house. And your food and everything else. Right. 20 years before the Declaration of Independence. And he is a nobody. I mean, most people have not heard of him, which is one one reason I was attracted to him, which goes to make the point that this was really in the air. People, all different levels of society, had this notion of freedom and how it applied to them. At the same time, armies were squaring off at Saratoga and Lexington and Concord. Husbands and wives were interacting with each other in a different way. And you see it reflected like from the 1750s to the 1770s. In the 1750s, a family portrait was the woman and children sitting like on a sofa and the man standing. By the 1770s, they're all on the same level. They're all standing. So in these little ways, you see, you know, at the social level, you know, these freedoms or, or where we stand as individuals uh, ha- have a different resonance. So... Speaking of differences in gender roles, one of the characters that you talk about is, is Margaret Coughlin. I hope I have the pronunciation right. Coughlin or Coughlin. It was since, since they didn't have recording devices, we don't know how she pronounced yeah. it. <laughs> Tell us about her, because she's kind of an extraordinary woman. She is, and she's not. Uh, a couple of interviewers have asked me, why did you not pick someone who is a more representative of women at the time? And I chose her, I think, because she's very atypical, but... She also represents, I mean, it, it would be anachronistic to talk about a woman's movement in the, at that time, but the cutting edge of it was forced marriage. There were plays being written and newspaper articles arguing that a woman should be allowed to marry for love and should not be forced by her parents. And that is exactly what happened to Margaret when she was a teenager in the middle of the war. Her father, who was a British officer, uh, decided she would marry another British officer whom she despised. And then she, she tried to rebel, then she was forced to anyway, and he was abusive. She eventually leaves him. She's very bold. She, several, throughout is, her life, she makes several dramatic Which moves. is almost unheard of. Uh, unheard of. Leaves the, him in Wales, walks off into the mountains, walks 60 miles, and never sees him again. 
she wants to have a life of her own. She wants some form of independence, which was basically impossible for a woman at the time. And so she identifies two role models, two ways to do it. You could either become an actress or you could become a mistress to somebody powerful. She tries both. Uh, she's more successful at being a mistress, and so she becomes a mistress to several important men in London and later in Paris. And so her life is this tragedy where, you know, she's from high to low. She's, like, a, attending all the state dinners and balls and things, and the next uh, moment she's in debtor's prison. Uh, but it, it, the, the trajectory of her life comes out of the American Revolution. It would not have happened the way it did had the revolution not existed. And out of this notion of freedom and where it was at that moment. And another story that really spoke to me, even though the experience is so alien to me, about someone living their life devoted on a journey to freedom was the story of of Venture Smith, the slave who was brought over from Africa as a boy. Venture Smith was a fascinating man, born in West Africa at the age of 10. His uh, village was attacked by an invading army. He was taken into slavery Another army attacked them and took him. Uh, They took him to one of these slave trading ports at the coast, and the ship that was in the harbor happened to be from Newport, Rhode Island, and so he ended up in New England uh, uh, as a slave and worked indefatigably to save money to free himself and then eventually his family. Uh, and, And what's interesting to me about that is all of his effort, this really dogged effort, which he describes, he dictated his uh, life story at the end of his life, is taking place against the backdrop of the Stamp Act, the towns and duties, where white people are clamoring, this growing clamor for freedom, which he basically is ignoring. He's Because he's saying, in effect, I am not trusting that that's going to apply to me. Yeah, that, I'm going that, to take that's matters That's not my, in my fight, own. that's somebody else's. Yeah, it's just not going to, I don't believe it. How does his story as he tells it, differ from the traditional narrative by abolitionists? Because the stories of of slaves were often written, but not by themselves. That's right. And there's a whole category called slave narratives, uh, which I, when I was researching the book, I knew I wanted to have some, to have a a focal point be one of these people. And uh, most of them, it turns out, were processed by abolitionists, these narratives. And they went to them I mean, with this, this noble purpose. They were trying to build a case file of stories to use uh, to change the law. But in doing so, they kind of homogenized, they Christianized, they put a heavy moral tone over it. Uh, one uh, historian calls this a black message in a white envelope. <laughs> um, Venture Smith's story is not part of that. It's clearly his own motivation and his voice comes through strong. And so that's one thing that really attracted me to him. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our guest is historian Russell Shorto, who is author of Revolution Song, A Story of American Freedom. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow! Nice! Yeah! 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, it's impossible to read this book without thinking about everything that's going on in politics today. And one thing that struck both Richard and me is that in a way, it's a rebuttal to some of the nativism and, you know, even white nationalism that we that we hear. You find these threads that go into the making of America in all these different sources. It wasn't just those guys, as you say, in the powdered wigs in Philadelphia. And not just that, but the country was German. It was Dutch. It was Iroquois. It was Muncie. It was Shawnee. Um, there were people speaking different languages. Uh, there were different communities that were quite closed off from the rest of the colonies. And then there were these quasi-melting pots in the cities. So, so it was a very diverse place from the beginning. Really cosmopolitan in, in many in places. The cities were cosmopolitan. Certainly New York was. Talk about Corn Planter, uh, a Seneca tribal leader. His, his real name escapes me. Kayetwake. Corn Planter is a little easier to... Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I was drawn to him. I wanted to have the native perspective because they have, you know, to talk about two sides. Well, the, the native side is another side. But even at that, they're all different tribes, each of which had their own uh, stake in what was going on. He is... What, what appeals to me about him is that he is this... He's he's the kind of stereotypical noble warrior, but he's also this philosophical, a political animal, a realist who is progressively drawn into the complexity of it. And I think part of what makes up his nature is the fact that his father was actually a Dutch American from Albany. Uh, he was an Indian trader, and uh, so when Cornplanter was growing up, other kids in the village basically would make fun of him because he looked his skin color was different and things. So it sets about this different. Uh, Identity, and he was a member of the Seneca tribe, which was part of the Iroquois nation. That's right. The, with the Iroquois, there were six nations, and the Seneca were the westernmost of them. Okay, and so he takes part in one of these gatherings at which they are debating whether or not to take part in the war. He argues strenuously that they stay out of it. The vote goes against him, and so he goes along with his people, fights viciously, uh, burning down American settlements and attacking forts. Then the war's over, the British lose, which means the Iroquois lose. The Iroquois decided in the revolution to side with the British, figuring that the British were much stronger. and, and would, Well, the British and, had won the last war. And the British, uh, <laughs> Joseph Brandt, who was Cornplanter's sort of uh, rival for supremacy, had been to London. He'd seen this society, and he came back telling people, look, these guys are going to win. They've got you know a society that you would not believe. So Cornplanter was overruled. Uh, the British lose the war which means the Iroquois do too. And then the Iroquois say to Cornplanter, we want you to represent us. You go to the Americans and, and negotiate. So now he's in this impossible position of he never wanted to be involved in the war anyway, and now he has to get what he can out of it. And the Americans basically say, too bad. You're on the losing side. We told you not to fight against us. Uh, and, then, and, and ultimately then he and George Washington have two meetings in Washington's presidency and in this, the last meeting, it's very poignant. By this time, you know, settlers have moved into their lands, uh, and they're being forced to sell. 
And, and meanwhile, a lot of his people back home are saying, you go and you get our lands back. And he knows that's not going to happen. So what he's saying to Washington is, look, we're forced to sell the lands. I've heard that these things exist called banks and that if you put your money in there, it'll be safe and our young men won't spend it. And, you know, so, and that I've heard about this thing called interest. Can you explain it to me? And so he's, he's basically saying to him, help me get something out of this, something lasting. He really represents the whole native quandary, I think. And it is a quandary. I mean, there was, it, it was just so heartbreaking. And they're totally sold out by the British. You know, when the British uh, uh, negotiate the treaty, uh, they just let them go. They promise that if you, if you ally yourselves with us, we'll protect you. And they just leave them to the mercy of the Americans. And what I was struck by is, I think for a lot of Americans today, we have a hard time realizing that the, the power and, and uh, the, the cultural military power that these, these native groups had. So at the start of the book, you know, at the beginning of the French and Indian Wars, the, the Iroquois nations are practically, they're a military power like France and Britain. Yeah. With, with, and who they ally, align with is critical. By the end of the revolution, their power has really been sapped away in this yeah. And, and they see where it's struggle. going. And, and, and so Corn Planter, trying to be a realist after the war, he lives into the 1830s, um, he's progressively, you know, he's advising that the, the Iroquois children learn English, that they have schools. And so he's accepting more and more of these things. And then at the end of his life, he has this dream. And in the dream, the creator comes to him and basically says, this is the wrong way. Our people can't be free like this. Um, so you have to turn back. So he tries to turn back the clock. He tells them, forget, let's close these schools, let's stop it all, and of course you can't do that. And his view, and and the Native American view of freedom at the time, is very different from the white settlers. You know, I spent time with uh, someone from Ganandagan, which is the, uh, it's a New York State Museum. It's, It's a Seneca culture museum south of Rochester. And uh, uh, this uh, curator there named Michael Galbin helped me in particular to understand the Seneca mindset, what it was like, because it's so hard to do, especially since all the records are written by uh, uh, non-natives. And and this concept of freedom, their concept of freedom was, you know, really came down. It was very much like what was coming out of Europe in the 17th century in that it was really, it came down to the individual. Every individual, not just, you know, your tribe ruled this way, your village could go another way. And within your village, you individually could go your own way. So there was a great deal of freedom, which ironically, while the Americans are fighting for freedom, they, they interpret this Iroquois freedom to be like waywardness. You know, they don't even understand it. And then there's also the role of women among the Iroquois. They actually, yeah, women had a great deal of freedom as well. They, and they had a certain amount of autonomy. It was, it's a matrilineal society, for one thing, so they had a lot of... Uh, and, and what does that mean? The, the, women, had, the women ran things in, in many respects. Women decided who they would go, go to war against, if they would attack a, neighbor, a neighboring village or not. So they had a lot of power. Let's talk about freedom of the press. The revolution is an era when that was a brand new concept, and the role of the press, it was so dominant in spreading these ideas and in uh, circulating some of the ideology and also the kind of cultural energy that made the revolution possible. Yeah, the press was, in a, I mean, everyone recognized that the press was a vital um, uh, organ for spreading what was going on, uh, and the the freedom 
had been established in a sense a couple of decades earlier with the in New York with the case of John Peter Zengler the notion that the, if if you report it and if it's true you're allowed to report it rather than you know if it's against the government then you can't report it um, which lives on today in libel law <laughs> exactly yeah, so, I mean, exactly if it's, the so, truth is your best so by defense. the time of the revolution this was uh this was you know well established now and the issue had to do with the fact that um uh the british where they were not in control, then the Americans, the American presses printed what they wanted. So they didn't have that issue. Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean. Right. So, so since you started writing this book and given that you, you wrote this extraordinary book, uh, Island at the Center of the World, about the Dutch impact uh, on New York City, how has your view of freedom changed? I think um, partly from writing that book and also from having lived for six years in the Netherlands, it gives you, it always, something like that gives you perspective on your home country. And um, not long after I first moved there, I wrote an article for the New York Times about um, the experience of living in a, quote, social welfare state. Um, And I had these stereotypical American notions of what that meant, and it really felt different from that. And uh, so I was trying to, you know, tease that out. And there is, you know, the American sense is that you're free as an individual, the more individual, the less you are oppressed by the state. Um, Their sense is they still see government as a representative of the people. Government is the people. Everybody complains about the government, and they have lots of flaws with it. But they still see the government, and, and therefore, when the government is uh, involved in a, uh, a healthcare system that applies to everyone, they see that as actually that doesn't diminish your freedom. That increases, that gives you more freedom because it means you don't have to worry what's going to happen to my family if I drop dead. You know, I mean, the, the certain things are taken care of, and that gives you this cushion. Are there any takeaways from history uh, that that? we could learn from there are these echoes that are still echoing with us and uh once again it i think by by being aware of that we can we can begin to transcend it the figure of abraham yates being this anti-revolutionary who fought right alongside all the patriots in the in the war and then the moment it was over basically turned on them and said you all are becoming an elite just like the elite that we just overthrew so i don't trust you uh, that you see repeated this populist theme throughout American history. You see that, I think, now in recent history, both in the people who supported Trump and in the people now who were scared to death of Trump. Uh, this very healthy suspicion that those in power are going to thwart you. Russell Shorto, author of Revolution Song. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you both. It was yeah. fun. So, Jim, there's one thing Russell said that I'm, I think, a lot more comfortable with than you are because I also lived in Europe. I lived in, in Britain for 20 years. And this idea that, that the government is there to, to help you yeah. in an ideal circumstance, even though you complain about it. Right. I think I don't disagree with that in the best scenarios. I think those scenarios tend to happen in countries that had a long history of capitalism 
that got them there. Amsterdam was one of the world's first capitalist states, and they built up the traditions of individual rights. You have rights over your property. They built up a lot of economic momentum that then allows them to say, okay, let's readjust the dials fairly slightly, and we'll have moderately high taxes, and we'll have nice benefits in the government, but that's not the same as we're just after the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution when Lenin taking power, is we are going to control everything and strip everything from the owners of property. And you look at what a disaster that was. So my point is that the societies that we think of as being sort of quasi-socialist, they're really not socialists at all. They're capitalist with a, a pleasant overlay of social welfare. It's a very different thing. One of the loveliest things about this book that we've just talked about is that it's a thriller. It's, it reads like a novel, but also that, that the American Revolution um, and the principles espoused in it are way more complex than they're often painted, and that we can look at freedom from a variety of perspectives and disagree about my view of freedom versus your view of freedom and and yet still celebrate the concept. Yes, yes. But I want to circle back to something we were talking about a little bit in the in the conversation with with Russell and that is that freedom is also scary. Freedom is also um sometimes it's intimidating and we've seen it again and again societies that have have pulled back from it. We see it in fascism, we see it in communism. We see it sometimes in movements that you want to submerge the individual in something you know that seems greater than themselves, and we see how easily that impulse can turn. Yeah, we see really it in dark. religious fundamentalism too. Uh, right. So I think we are living in a time right now when the notion of freedom that really needs to be reaffirmed. It we do, we, it, we it have does. lost the sense of why it mattered so much. And we've also seen it with the rise of religious fundamentalism in the Middle East and, and in the West and other parts of the world, and we see it in the denial of a woman's right to choose, that that is wrapped up in, in a very kind of rigid concept where you're denying, in many cases, somebody else's right to do something on their own. I don't want to drag this off into an abortion debate. No, but, but I, it but, is part of this broader thing of of judging the limits right. of somebody else's freedom i i'm i'm a libertarian so i don't take a stand i'm not a i'm, I'm not um you know uh, somebody who's I, i'm pro-choice basically but in defense of those people if you believe that the fetus has human rights then that is a question of rights now i don't think we need to litigate no. that right here but so there's so many different ways to look that, at this you know and and so russell's book he talked about the promise of freedom Slavery is this heartbreaking example of how the promise of freedom was so incomplete, and even today, not fully realized. And I think that, you know, it is really important to to keep circling back to those values. And he talked a lot about the Enlightenment. This has come up with with Michael Shermer and Neil deGrasse Tyson. That period, that couple hundred years when we started seeing ourselves as individuals, started turning telescopes up into the sky, started rejecting the authority of the church and saying that we need to use rationalism to, uh, to understand the world. The most important period in human history, I think, and I actually am quite concerned that those values are being 
rejected by many, both on the far right, on the far left, Islamic fundamentalists. Across the board, we're seeing people turn away from that challenge of really thinking hard and taking responsibility for one's beliefs. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. <laughs> and that was not a solution. By no, no, no. I think it was in a way. <laughs> and our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Yes. The music is by Lou Stravinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. Uh, find out more at uh, DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.